Father, it's never too much to come before you in prayer and submit our prayer requests and express our thanksgiving to you. Father, we thank you once again for this privilege, for allowing us to come boldly before your throne of grace. And we have three special prayer requests at this moment for Connie, for Tisha's mom, and for Dr. Moraj's brother in Toronto. Father, you are the supreme doctor. You know every cell, every atom that is a part of our body. And Lord, you can direct the doctors, you can bring healing, only you can. So we submit these three people uh, to you, Lord, and their needs to you, that you may uh, look upon them and help them at this uh, difficult time. I also ask, Lord, that you may use me as your instrument now, that you may anoint my lips, and every word, every thought that I share and that I can convey here may be guided by you and may be an expression of the message you have for us today and not my own. I ask these blessings and prepare our hearts for the message. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, for, for decades, we've been used to, to phrases and to a motto that our friends out of the border use it uh, frequently. I think they still use to date. United we stand, divided we fall. And uh, while well, we are used to that, right? It almost sounds as, as music. United we stand, united we stand. But I want you to think about it. I want you to think and to give your answer, not because there is a motto out there saying united we stand. I want you to think how important it is and if it is really necessary that we be united as a church. Last weekend, I was not here. I, I would have been at the Madoc Church. And I was with the Madoc uh, men, with the men of the Madoc Church. We were camping. It was a camp out uh, just for the men of the church. So there were 14 of us, including some friends from, from other churches as well. And I was there with my son for the weekend. And it was actually a canoe trip. So you had to canoe one, one stretch of the lake. Then you had a portage that was really hard. You had to go climb a, a, a couple hills to get to the other side. And then you would canoe another stretch. And then you had another portage. And finally, canoe the last longer st uh, stretch and get to the place where we were camping. And there we were uh, in the middle of nowhere. But we did, had, uh, we did have a, a settler's signal reception there. But we were there. Enjoying nature, enjoying fellowship with one another. And some things you learn when you are camping, right? you got to stay together when you are out there in the woods. You don't want to wander by yourself. We did see some, some bears, cats along the way. But we were always together. And if we were to run into a, a bear, we'd just wave our hands and make, pretend that we're bigger than we really are. And yell, well, that's what they tell. I never saw a bear, and so hopefully that will work. But you learn to, to stay together and not to cry wolf, right? Yeah, that's another thing you should never do when out in the woods. Now, this couple here, look at this couple. Herbert and Zilmira Fisher. Have you heard about this couple? Okay, this couple, yes, some, some, someone has. This couple in 2008, they, they made it into the Guinness Book of Records 
as the longest marriage at 84 years of marriage. 84 years, 2008. They were married on May 13, 1924. And just coincidentally, that's the same month and day that my parents were married. Uh, May 13, only 30 years later, 1962. So 1924, they got married. And they stayed together for 87 years. In 2011, the wife, uh, the husband passed away, Herbert. And Zomira passed away a few years, a couple of years later in 2013. And both died at the age of 105 years. Now, of course, they, they left a, a big legacy. And then when they were asked, they were interviewed and asked about the, the secret to the success of their marriage and what would be the, the greatest legacy that they had left. And they said, well, our greatest legacy is our five children, our ten grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. And they were asked, look at this, they were asked, you got married very young. How did you both manage to grow as individuals, yet not grow apart as a couple? And here's what they answered. Everyone who plants a seed and harvests the crop celebrates together. We are individuals, but we accomplish more together. And they were asked, at the end of a bad relationship day, what is the most important thing to remind yourselves? And they said, remember, marriage is not a contest. You never keep a score. I did this more than you did today, or you, you didn't do that. Never keep a score. God has put the two of you together on the same team to win. Well, some, when you look at the, at the marriage institution, right, you could only expect that uh, they should always work to be together and to work together and stay together and make things happen together. That's the basic premise, the basic principle behind the marriage. But again, we come back to the question, well, if that principle is applicable to marriages, what about the church? Is it important that we be united? Is it necessary at all that we be united as a church? And when I said I wanted to think about it is because our answer to that question will determine our attitude toward the church, will determine our attitude toward church leadership, will determine our attitude toward the pastor, our attitude toward other members of the church, our attitude toward the community around us. So what is the biblical answer? More than just a motto, more than just united we stand, divided we fall. What does the Bible say? Well, here in John, in the book of John, and this morning uh, we read John 14, 25 through to 31. But here in the book of John, we see Jesus talking to his disciples. And this scripture we read this morning comes in the context of the last few hours, I would say, of Jesus here on earth before his death, before he would go to die. So he's talking to his disciples. In chapter 13 of the book of John, we find Jesus washing the disciples' feet. 
as part of the Lord's Supper. And he was there teaching them this lesson in humility. This lesson of love. This lesson of loving one another. As part of his teaching, as he's washing the disciples' feet and as he's talking with them, he says, you must love one another as I have loved you. So that everyone around you will know that you are my disciples. That's how they will know it. If you love one another. So that's chapter 13. Then in chapters 14 through to 16 in the book of John. Jesus gives the disciples a panoramic view of upcoming events. He talks about his death. He talks about his resurrection. He talks about his departure to the Father. He talks about the coming of another helper, the Holy Spirit. He talks about the hatred and the imminent persecution they were going to face. And he also talks about his second coming. And then in chapter 17, it's a well-known chapter. Jesus offers a special prayer. He prays for himself, for the disciples, and for those who are going to believe. And then in chapters 18 through to 21, that's the end of the book of John. And that's where we find the description of his, his, uh, when he was betrayed. And was led to, to, was arrested, his judgment, and then his death and resurrection. But throughout this whole passage, all the way from chapter 13 through chapter 21, particularly the chapters we're, we're studying here, 14, 15, 16, there are two prominent themes. Love and unity. Jesus says, love one another, love one another. And there is the theme of unity in Christ. Unity with Christ. Unity with the Father. Unity with one another. Love and unity. John 13, 34 and 35. We read a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love, love, love. And unity, John 17, 21 through to 23, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. Perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So I asked you to think about your answer. Even though we did have a, a right and quick answer. Because there is then a, a, a consequence to our answer. So if we think that it is important that we be united as a church, if it's important and if it's necessary that as a church we be together, then the question is, how willing are you, how willing am I to live and experience that kind of unity? Am I willing to love 
as Christ did? Am I willing to live in unity? Am I willing to promote that spirit of unity? Yes, there are implications to our answer. If you say yes, that the church must be together and united, that we must love one another, then there are consequences and implications to that answer. Someone wrote that love is the greatest need of the church. The greatest need of the church is not resource materials. The greatest need of the church is not training. The greatest need of the church is not money. The greatest need of the church is love. What kind of conversation, for example, do you have with other members of the church? What kind of conversation do you have when you pick up the phone and call someone else? And you call a friend from church, you call a member of the church, and you talk to them. What kind of conversation do you have? Do we spend any time talking about Jesus? Or do you spend the most time talking about yourself? Or worse, do you spend more time talking about others? When we are faced with our own limitations, when we look at ourselves and we see our limitations and we see our errors and our defects of character, what do we share with our brothers and sisters when we talk to them? Do we talk about how the work of the Holy Spirit can help us overcome our limitations or do we focus on the problems? Or rather, do we go off on a tangent and start to talk about the defects we find in others so that our own would look dimmer? Who asked me or who asked you to be a judge of my brother, to judge others? God didn't. That's not a work that God has asked you and I to do. That's not man's prerogative. That's God's prerogative. Nowhere in the Bible will find God placing any human being on the judgment seat to judge others. And if we feel this tendency at any point in our lives, we can be assured that we will be no will be will not be sorry working with Christ because that's not what he asked us to do. You see, there is a text here in this passage, in the next chapter, in chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 11, where Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that, sh that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, may be complete, as other versions say. So, the message of Jesus, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is one of joy. So if your life is not being filled with joy, if you're not going around feeling the joy, that, that gladness that comes when you, when you meet Jesus, there's something wrong then. And you need to pray about it. The truth of Jesus Christ will never lead to sorrow. The truth of Jesus Christ will never lead to sadness. It will never lead to anger. The truth of Jesus Christ will lead to joy. 
So if someone comes up with a kind of gloomy, heavy conversation, if there is anyone who delights in criticizing others, that's not the work that the Lord gave us to do. That's not a reflection of the joy of the Lord, is it? It's not. Our mind should be filled with thoughts of holy things. So here is my, my appeal to you. That we focus on the truths which are the pillars of our faith. And that we move forward together. You see, I'm going to say something that came to my attention the other day. I was talking to, to a church member. And they were saying that today there are people who spend time and energy. You know, trying to catch the preacher. Trying to catch a church leader in a word. Or maybe in a, in a gesture, in an expression. And they listen to the, this sermon, for example, is being recorded. It's going to be on the web. So some people go on the web and try to listen to sermons. And if throughout the sermon there is one single word that they were expecting the preacher to say, but the preacher didn't say, they say, oh, that's not a true Christian preacher. That's not a true Seventh-day Adventist. Because they, they, they didn't say this word. Well, brothers and sisters, God's message... God's truth as contained in the Bible. Remember this. Every time you hear a sermon. You listen to a sermon. God's message is way bigger. Than I could possibly contain in a single sermon. So let's center our minds on things that are the pillars of our faith. Let's not center our minds. Sorry. In those things which are questionable. Which are objectionable. Because people will focus on that and they will make a liar. They will make a deceiver out of a true preacher. And that's the problem with human judgment, right? Because human judgment is, is what it is. It's human. So let's never judge someone else by our own, by our own limited standards. Our vision is limited. It's finite. We're human. Let's not judge others. Let's not criticize. There is a tendency to criticize the leadership these days. The leadership of the church. I'm not preaching here to, to vindicate the leadership. I'm not preaching on my behalf. But I do notice this. There is a growing tendency. And people go on, on, on the internet. And people send emails. And they say all kinds of things, saying, well, the church leadership is corrupted. The church leadership is, is, has failed, has apostatized. You know, we are all human. And the Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the one who is the head of the church. But yes, the, the Holy Spirit appoints leaders for the local church. The Holy Spirit... Uh, enables and empowers leaders for the work. Biblical leadership has a actually been established in the Old Testament. It's not only in the New Testament. In the Old Testament. You remember the story when uh, Moses' father-in-law came to see him? Remember? And Moses were, was overwhelmed. And Jethro, his father-in-law, said, You were going to kill yourself. He didn't say quite that, but that's what he meant. 
And you have to delegate. You have to find people who are capable of taking smaller groups, and then you will oversee them, but they will be taking care of this, the, the minor stuff. And when there is something big, they will come up to you directly. But anything that they can resolve, you have to delegate. So right there in the, the Old Testament, this was established. But you see, the leadership is human as well. Moses was human. The church leaders are, hu are human. The, the elders of the church, the pastors. But instead of focusing on disagreement, instead of focusing on that which we uh, capriciously think should be done, let's focus on what we agree. And let's look upon Jesus. Because if you look around, you won't find anyone perfect. There is only one perfect. Remember that I'm not perfect either and neither are you. So here is the counsel. Look away from yourself. Look away from others. And look up to Jesus. He's the only one perfect. We need more of Jesus and less of ourselves. You know, this was a, quite a dry summer, wasn't it? At least here in, in southern Ontario. And it's interesting. It's interesting to see, to look at the grass. And the grass is all dry and brown. But the weeds are lush, green, and growing. Aren't they? Yeah. And that's, there is a spiritual illustration right there. Because remember, until Jesus comes... Our carnal nature will be struggling, will be wrestling against our spiritual nature. That's our fight. We are human. And so envy, jealousy, slander, spirit of criticism, they're always there lurking, trying to flourish, ready to flourish if the opportunity arises. Ready to grow if they are cultivated. You have to weed that out. You can't do it by yourself. You have to surrender that to the Lord. Ask the Lord to, to come and, and nip them right there in the bud. We are different. But still, we must be united. Nowhere in Jesus' teachings... Nowhere in Jesus' teachings to his disciples or in Jesus' prayer in John 17. Nowhere. He asked that the disciples be exactly alike in everything. And we are not supposed to be alike. We are different. Now, because we are different. Because someone else does, does not think the way I do. Am I going to destroy confidence in that person? Am I going to play them down because they don't think like I do? No. The church is made up of each and every one of us. And praise the Lord, we're different. We are to work together and not against each other. You know, criticism is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. It, it drives a wedge between church members. Drives a wedge between church members and the pastor. Drives a wedge between church members and the leadership. Drives a wedge between church members, the church, and the community. 
Let me read a quote to you that we find here, and it's Ellen White who wrote this. And it's in the manuscript releases, number 11, page 265. God may choose instrumentalities that we do not accept because they do not exactly meet our ideas. And in place of leaving them with God, for His Spirit to work with them, many begin to present difficulties. They begin to barricade the way and cherish a grieved feeling because they see that they are doing a work that has not been done. May the Lord show you, may the Lord show you all what to do that you may be filled with thanksgiving, with gratitude and praise to God for the precious gift of the Son of God and put away envies, jealousies and rivalries that true love and unity may exist. I really, I really expected to hear 80 amens loud and clear. You know, that's what Jesus taught. That we are different, but we're still united. We should still live in unity. Jesus asked for unity. Jesus taught love. And He asked for unity. He prayed for unity. Unity does not mean that everyone will have the same attitude. That everyone will have the same temperament. Or that everyone will think exactly the same. We will be one as much as we're able to accept our different personalities, our different methods. But there is more. Some Christians will be more versed in a certain portion of Scripture than others. And that's fine. Some portion of Scriptures will appeal more to you than to me. And that's fine. While one, while one will appreciate more one a portion of scripture, the other will appreciate more another one. And that's all right. It is the spirit of love and the spirit of patience that will bring us together. Focusing on disagreement does not come from God, it comes from Satan. Harmonizing different personalities, that's God's gift. That comes from God. There's another short quote here from the same manuscript releases. Number 11, pages 266-67. When, as individual members of the church, you love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself, <clears throat> there will be no need of labored efforts to be in unity. Look at that. For there will be oneness in Christ as a natural result. The years, the years will no longer be open to reports that will injure your neighbor. And no one will take up a reproach against his neighbor. What kind of conversations do we have when we pick up the phone or when we talk with our friends? She continues, The members of the church will cherish love and unity and be as one great family. Then... We shall bear the divine credentials to the world that will testify that God has sent His Son into the world. Christ has said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John thirteen thirty five. The divinity of Christ is acknowledged in the unity of the children of God. Amen. 
Amen. Now, I am almost finishing here. I know it's getting late, and but I've been four Sabbaths away, so I, I thought I could preach maybe a couple hours and just to make up. But in the middle of Jesus Christ's conversation with the disciples, he says something that may sound kind of out of place. And he's talking about his coming. He's talking about the coming uh, of the Holy Spirit. He talks about his, his departure. He promises the Holy Spirit. He washes the disciples' feet. He t teaches love. Speaks of unity. And then at the end of chapter 14, we read this this morning. Antavia just read that. The very last verse in chapter 14, verse 31. He says, do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he says, rise. Let's go from here. And what does that mean? Rise, let's go from here. Well, he was, he was on the way to the Via Dolorosa. He was on the way to, to the path of suffering. He knew he was not too far from his death. So he tells the disciples, rise. Let's go from here. And he calls the disciples to share with him his last moments of suffering and grief. And in fact, they all abandoned him. Even those who were closer to him at the time when he was being judged. Peter in particular denied him. But he said, rise. Let's go from here. And he called them to see the way of suffering. To go with him and to see how much you would be suffering for you and die. How much you would be suffering for them in giving his life for them. While well, today Jesus' words still, still sound. Down through the centuries his words have been recorded in the Bible and we still have them today. They still sound to our ears. Rise, let's go from here. But this time, not to follow him until death, unto death. Because he's already died and offered himself for us. But Jesus calls us, as the book of Revelation says, and they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus is calling a group of people who go with Him wherever He goes, wherever He leads. This time not to the cross. This time not to go to the cross. But He calls us to rise, to climb a little higher. He calls us to follow Him wherever He leads us. That's His calling. That's what he's calling for. But if you want to rise, if you want to step a little higher, if you want to climb higher, if you want to, to stand up and tall, if you want to leave this world of suffering, there is only one way where you can go. How we can march together as a church is in love and unity. If that's your desire... If you desire to climb up a little higher, if you desire to follow the Lamb as He calls you, rise, let's go from here. There is only one way. You must love more. We need more of Christ's love and more unity with Him. More unity with the Father, 
with the Holy Spirit and with one another. Jesus said right here in Mark chapter 3 verses 24-25. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. You know brothers and sisters, we are getting to the last Last moments of this earth's history. We cannot afford to be found fighting against each other. We cannot afford to be found fighting against the church. Against this own house. Remember when you look around and you see someone that you think is maybe short. Of the glory of God. Remember that we all are. Remember that everyone around us is striving to come closer to Christ. To complete their journey victorious. And to eventually enjoy eternity with God and the angels and all the saints around this universe. They're all struggling. They're all wrestling. Not against flesh and blood. But against principalities. Against powers. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's the struggle. How much more would we love each other. If only for a moment we could see what the other person is going through. So here is my appeal to you. If you really think that we, it is necessary for us to... To go forward united, you must love more. And if that's your desire, I'd like to appeal to you that you stand up this morning. And I want to offer a prayer for you. Jesus is calling this church for a very special work around this community. And there will be people coming with different ideas and methods and plans that maybe are not exactly what you have devised. But remember, God can use each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, because your word is clear. It is not only important that we live together in unity and love one another. It's absolutely necessary. It's vital for the future of the church. And Father, if we do want to see Jesus come, if you really want to see people being attracted to you, we must live in a way that reflects the character of Christ. So please, Father, help us love more. We can't do it on our own. Our carnal nature is struggling, Lord, and sometimes we see how far we are from the ideal that you have for us. But Lord, help us. May Christ live his life within us, that we may love others as he did. Father, bless this church. May we leave this sanctuary today thinking about this message. Thinking about how much more we need to love one another. So that all will know that we are your disciples. Be with us Lord and bless us during the week. May we keep this message in our minds. 
when when we leave this place and go through our day-to-day activities and we are challenged and faced with our daily issues and challenges and in our workplace and activities that maybe will will take our minds away from this but help us lord stay focused and stay together in prayer in friendship in love and in unity that's my prayer in the name of jesus our savior amen